though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we do rejoice. We rejoice in the God of our salvation. We just rejoice in knowing that you are sovereignly in control. And Father, we do rejoice even as this text tells us to, even in suffering when the suffering is done for the name of Christ and is right. We pray, Father, this morning as we go into the word of God that once again you be with those in junior church work in the hearts of these children, be with the teachers there, and Father, be with us. Help our concentration to be in the word of God, and might the Holy Spirit be unhindered in his work in each of our lives individually. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. The title this morning was, Not Will I Suffer, But Why Am I Suffering? When we hear the word suffering, I would venture to say that no one likes to hear that term, much less to experience suffering. Nevertheless, at one time or another, we will all experience some form of suffering whether that is emotional, whether it's physical, it does cause pain. And when we deal with pain, we know that pain is really not an easy thing. It is true that everyone uh, has a different threshold, if you will, for pain, whether that's physical or whether that's emotional. And people can tolerate some forms of pain better than other forms, but everyone, without exception, can be brought to the place where the pain from the suffering is not easy and, in fact, is too much. Some common reactions that we usually have, if we're honest, and I have seen it in my lifetime, is that people usually react with, why me? This should not be happening to me. It's interesting that I say this because I had the message prepared uh, before yesterday, but I was at a meeting yesterday and I was driving with someone who was an unsaved individual. 
driving with somebody and he wanted to talk to me about some situations that happened in his family and that was the question that came up. It was something that happened to a member of his family. It was why me? And it was why should this circumstance happen? And it's a very typical reaction. Uh, this should not be happening to me. And it reaches the point often that how much more can I take? I've met with believers and we've prayed together and we've talked and some of the suffering is great. And it can get us to the point that we didn't ever realize we could get there, but I don't know how much more I can take with this. And certainly even for believers, another common one is what is God doing? I just wish I knew what God was doing in the situation. So as we talk about suffering, and we come to it again today, those are just some practical matters to consider. But as Peter is drawing the letter to a close, and in particular this chapter, as we have seen throughout the entire book, he's been addressing believers who are suffering. And he recognizes that it's real. They are suffering from trials. They are suffering because of persecution. Or they are suffering simply because of failure in their own life. And he is writing to encourage them. And so as we come to this close, uh, this section that closes before he opens up chapter 5 with a different area, uh, as it comes down to this, I want to do a very quick review to remind us it'll help us even in understanding what he says here in this closing area of chapter 4. He has been encouraging how? He started off by laying some foundational things in chapter 1. And let me remind us that he reminded the believers here who they were. Who are they? They are believers in Christ. That makes them an alien. That makes them foreign to this world. This world is not our home, and we always need to go back to that. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven. And he started with that. What does that mean? Well, in chapter 1, verse 4, he told us that it means that we have an inheritance. We have a living hope. We have an inheritance that is eternal, undefiled, reserved in heaven. It is eternally secure. Nothing can take that away. And he's encouraging believers, and we need to go back to that. Not only am I a believer, and this is not my home, but I have a living hope. It's real. And my inheritance is real. And it's not to be compared with this world. It's eternal. It's not a temporal thing. He also told us in chapter 1 his foundational things in verses 6 and 7, and I will probably go to that passage later on in the message, that it's necessary. Suffering is, a necess is necessary in our lives. One of the reasons it's necessary, he said in chapter 1, is it proves who we are. Through the testing process, it proves whether our faith is genuine, whether or not it was just something like, if you will, the seed that was sown, the trials of life come along, and people run away. And you find out there's no root, there's no reality to it, and so it tests our faith, which is also a good thing we have learned because it helps us to count that more precious than gold because I have never met a believer to this day, and it may be someone in the audience that's exception to it, that is not at some time, whether it's early Christian life or later on, 
comes to the place to really examine and say, am I really saved? And that testing of our faith helps build that security as well. He has shown that. And then from chapter 1, verse 22, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 11, and I will do this very quickly, he has told us some practical actions that we can take. Testing will come. It's a part of proving our faith. It's a reality. We need to stay focused. And here is what he said in summary of chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 11. And I just summarized it with 10 points that we've previously covered. One is that we are to love one another with a sincere love. During suffering, make sure that we are loving, loving one another, not tearing one another down when you see somebody suffering. Oh, well, they deserve it. Oh, well, they got what was coming to them. Watch out when it comes to you. And so we had to love one another with a sincere love. We had to crave the word of God, something that is desperately needed in this time in the Christian life. We need to crave. We have the word of God, but oftentimes we don't even read it. We ought to crave it. With third, we ought to build up his church. We ought to be involved in building the church up, not destroying it in any way, shape, or form. I shouldn't do that, nor should you. Our entire ministry should be to build up the body of Christ. He's building his church. We ought to be there helping to build it up. Fourth, we ought to treat civil authorities, how practical this has been, even in the message that I gave two weeks ago or three weeks ago. It is very practical that we need to treat civil authority properly according to the scriptures, not as the world would treat them. Fifth, we ought to be a good worker. On our job, we had to do the best. We had to realize that our employer really is the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what we are doing. And we ought to do our best on the job. Sixth, we ought to be a good spouse, whether that be husband or wife, we have seen in the chapter. Peter has dealt with that. No matter whether you're dealing with an unsaved spouse or not, we are to be the spouse that is a good spouse that represents the Lord Jesus Christ properly because we are citizens of heaven. Seven, we are to be a good gospel proclaimer. We are to be involved individually with evangelism. That is telling people the good news. They need to hear it from us. The world needs good news. We have the message. And remember that we are read of all men. That was point number eight. Everybody will see our lives. And it'll show through. And then as it wound down, we got to chapter four. And since that one's close by, you can look at it in verse 1 if you want. But he said we ought to arm ourselves for battle. And oftentimes that does not happen. We don't get up in the day and get ready and get prepared and put on the armor of God and get ready to face the battles. And we're not armed. And so our mind, as we dealt with that, is uh, challenged by all different things that are ungodly. And it's easy to submit to that and easy to give into it. But if we arm ourselves with a godly thinking right away, we will be equipped. And then lastly, we saw, um, just a summarization, right through to verse 11, he said, be ready for Christ's return. We ought to be ready for that. We're to be good stewards. And we're to be involved in exercising our gifts and to realize that Christ, if you truly believe in the rapture, you truly believe Christ is coming again, then live like it. Live accordingly. Don't live so that you're just like the world. 
And that's been what Peter has been encouraging these people that are under persecution to remember and under suffering. And now we come to verses 12 through 19. And just to say briefly, historically, probably, and I say probably, there's no way to prove this as far as to know what Peter's thinking was as the Spirit of God is working uh, through him. But historically, we can place Peter as to where he was. And so I say probably, Peter anticipates that the suffering is going to get worse. Now, why would I say that probably historically? Because Nero was in power. And he knew that. And if you do go back and look at history, we have the destruction of Rome and the persecution for Christians is going to increase. And so Peter probably had some awareness of the world that he was living in, just like we should. And did he look around and say, well, the things are going to get better? No. He was a realist. From the world's point of view, he saw that persecution was going to come greater for the believer. And so in doing so, he gives them two practical things to remember in closing out this section. One, he encourages them to stay focused. Keep your focus. And then secondly, something that's very important for us, make sure you're suffering for the right reasons. Make sure that while you're suffering, the sufferings are for the right reasons. So let's address it in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. First of all, 12 through 14, he talks to them about staying focused. And he starts again with a compassionate term, where it's beloved, and it's a simple term, and one that we see often in Scripture. But it's a compassionate term because we are the beloved of God, and we are beloved children of God, and we need to recognize that. As a Christian, we are the beloved ones. We've received special love from God. And we have the forgiveness of sins. We have eternal life. We are a child of God. We've been placed in the body of Christ. And we are loved. And don't ever forget that. Because in suffering, we can even forget that right away. And we can forget to feel that way toward others. And so then he says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. That's part of our focus. We should not be surprised by the things that happen. We should not be surprised by the suffering that comes. No Christian should be surprised. And yet, even in casual conversation, as we talk among ourselves and as we, quote-unquote, have fellowship one with another, oftentimes there's almost a reaction of surprise by what the government does, or surprised by what somebody else does, or surprised by what the world does. And Peter says, we ought not to be surprised. We ought not to be shocked. That's really what the word means. You know, some... Times we just had last week, we had uh, seven baptisms. And sometimes people have the concept of professing a faith in, in Christ and becoming a Christian is easy and everything just goes away. All your problems go away. That's the solution. You just become a Christian and then everything's fine. You get an easy life. Everybody's going to love you. There won't be any sin in your life. Everything will go smooth. You have a ticket to heaven. And, and that's all it is. Uh, he is my security blanket to know Christ. And it's this religious thing to do. And uh, I should never get involved in suffering now. Because after all, I had all these things wrong in my life. Now I've come to Christ, everything's supposed to go smooth, right? No, not at all. We have the privilege of knowing him. We have the privilege of knowing the truth. We have the privilege of standing for the truth. And all of that will affect us and cause even suffering. 
We are not to be surprised by the world. The world, in fact, will uh, reject you and they'll rejoice over your standards? No. If you're standing for Christ, there'll be persecution. Bottom line is, being a Christian is not an easy option. And we need to remember that. Even in our presentation of the gospel. And you've heard that from me many times. Sometimes in our quote-unquote evangelism, we just try to make everything so smooth for some person. Uh, you, need, you need to believe on Christ. Okay, what does that mean? Don't you want to go to heaven? And we expect the person to turn around and say, oh, no, I don't want to do that. And so, of course they do. Well, just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their concept is, just believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing about following him. It's nothing about being bought by a price. It's nothing about belonging to him and living your life for Christ. It's nothing about holiness. It's so, yeah, sure, why wouldn't I want to go to heaven? I just got to bow and say a prayer. But in reality, we need to remember that it is going to result in persecution. And in fact, remember what Peter just taught. Go back to chapter 4, verse 4. Peter taught this, that the world is surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. The world's reaction, it's interesting the way he uses the terms here, he said the world's reaction is surprise that you as a Christian don't follow what they follow. And that's why you sometimes lose friends. And that's why sometimes you are under persecution. But he says we are not to be surprised like they are surprised at us. We are to expect it. And they don't, the world doesn't like our stand, but we ought to expect it. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. You know the passage, but I want you to see it. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Suffering should not be regarded as foreign if you are a Christian. This isn't foreign to the Christian life. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Why do you think the Lord says you better count the cost? Before you say you belong to Christ, before you're ready to get baptized and make a public profession, you had better count the cost of what that means. Because this, you're saying to the world, I am no longer running with the world. I am no longer standing by their standards. I am a disciple. I am a follower of Christ. And what will that cause? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might, maybe, is that what it says? No. No. You will, you shall be persecuted. Why? Because you belong to Christ. Because you're taking that stand. Look at verse 13. But evil men and imposters, imposters, will proceed from bad to what? Worse. Deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you've learned and been convinced and knowing from whom you've learned them. The idea is to continue on. And he talks about how Timothy knew the sacred writings. If you're going to live for Christ, you are not to be surprised. You should expect to suffer for the cause of Christ. You should expect that. So we should expect it. We should expect things to get worse and worse, not to get better. We should not be surprised by the acts of the Supreme Court that I addressed three weeks ago. We ought not to be surprised by any action that our leaders take 
that are not godly. We should not be surprised by the reaction of our unsaved friends and what they might think and what they might cause, how they might ridicule. In fact, we should be surprised if there is not a negative reaction toward us. That might sound strange to you. Because the people will recognize you doing your job right, living your life for your spouse, but also when you stand for things that do not do what the world does and want to go the way the world goes, you will be maligned. You will be talked about. You will be shunned. It says that in chapter 4. And what happens? Well, in verse 12, he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. It is a fiery ordeal. That word is interesting. It's painful. That's why I said what I did in my introduction. You will feel pain, whether that be emotional or whether that be physical. It is not easy. It is not easy to have friends desert you. It is not easy to be criticized at work. It is not easy uh, to be criticized because you don't go the way the world goes. That is not. It is painful. And what does it do? It tests your faith. There he is again. Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing happened to you. We should not be sitting here saying, well, I didn't expect this to happen. You should have expected it by following Christ. And it's the way to refine you. Go back to chapter 1. I said I'd look at it, so let's look at it here. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 6 and 7. We studied it a little more in depth then. In this you greatly rejoice, and hold on to that, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and I dealt with that, you have been distressed by various trials. They come in different shapes and forms, so that the proof of your faith, here it is, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire. Say it's a fiery ordeal. We're tested even by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter reminded them, our testing of our faith and our suffering ought to be precious to us. And it ought to, we ought to realize that it's not punitive, it's what? Refinement. And we talked about God's refinery as we studied that in the chapter. Chapter 1. God uses trials to refine us, to purify us, to help us to live holy the way we ought to. And so, A, we ought to stay focused. How? By not being surprised. B, we ought to stay focused by realizing that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, and then he says, keep rejoicing. We share in the sufferings of Christ. Again, people think that believing on Christ and asking Christ into your heart, sometimes we give this concept to children, is just an act with nothing involved with it, where we are also now going to share in the sufferings of Christ. We now share of belonging to him. It is an absolute privilege the scriptures tell us. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Here the apostle Paul said this, For to you it has been 
granted. We talk about grace. Listen, what this is saying is it's by God's grace that for Christ's sake, not only do you believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That is a privilege. That is God's grace. It, we, we don't view suffering as God's grace, especially even if it is suffering for Christ. But it is. It is God's grace working in our life that not only do we suffer, we enjoy belonging to him and believe on him, but also that we will suffer for his sake. So what happens if we take stands for Christ and we take stands that are biblical and we take stands no matter what it is in our families, with our children, with our spouses, with our work, with one another, uh, in society, and we take biblical stands, we will suffer for it. Just like Christ suffered when he stood for righteousness. But it is a privilege. And it's also referred that way in chapter 3 of Philippians. Go with me to Romans chapter 8 for just a second. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. Romans 8, 17 says this. And if children, if you truly belong to Christ, you're an heir. Heir also and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Yes, we're a child of God, but indeed we also suffer with him and we, will, we want the glorification. We want the identification. We want to say that we're a Christian. We want to belong to him, but we don't want the suffering. And that's why sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because he knew the power of the gospel. And sometimes we won't witness to people because we're afraid of what they'll think of us. We won't take a stand on a certain position because we feel that'll isolate us at work. We won't take a stand in a position because our neighbors won't like us. Or our relatives, when it gets into the family, don't like the stands that we're going to take, so we'll go along with them. But being a Christian means you take the right stands, and it's a privilege to suffer. We need to stand, and it goes against the world. Go to one more passage, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Look at the words of Christ. In verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave, and that's what we are, we're slaves to Christ, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they maybe will, no, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So if they persecuted Christ, we can expect that. So he's saying again to them, don't be surprised. Okay, get focused. Do not be surprised by it and realize that you're suffering with Christ. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. The third thing he says is keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. Now you wonder, is he a sadist? Does he just like pain? No. But no, Christ is working. And the example is Acts chapter 16. I won't turn back there. Remember it. I, I read it to you before. You're familiar with it? In Philippi. Here you come along and there's someone that's even saying, this is disciples basically of Christ and they're talking about the living God. You would say, praise the Lord. Listen to what they're doing. No. He knew what was going on. And Paul turned around and knew that that was not a clean spirit, that that was not of God. He rebuked the spirit, and all of a sudden, what happened? Notice the context of that. All of a sudden, people thought their livelihood was affected. Now you're affecting my pocketbook. 
Now you're affecting my livelihood. And they started to do what? Persecute, and they beat them. And Paul and Silas get thrown into prison, and what did they do? They said, woe is me, I am undone. Oh, the pain and the suffering. They were suffering, and there was pain. Their focus was right. Why? They were suffering because they did what was right. They stood for what was right, and they were thrown in prison, and because of their reaction, they could rejoice. They were singing hymns. They were praising God that they had the privilege. And you'll find that in the book of Acts over and over again. The people rejoiced in the fact that they were able to suffer for Christ. And they shared in the sufferings for Christ. And the result of it was what? The result in that particular case was the jailer got saved and his family because of their testimony. You see, that's the difference. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. They were suffering for the right reasons. They were suffering for Christ, and they were able to rejoice because they knew they were suffering because they were an alien. They knew they were suffering because they were a part of the body of Christ. And that is why you have James chapter 1, where it says, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. They come in different shapes and different forms in our lives. But we can rejoice. And notice what he says in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, to the degree, he says, keep rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, when he returns, you may rejoice with exaltation. It's interesting. And I'll purposely use this word. There's the idea of the rapture. That's what it means. He says, if you think you have joy now, when he comes back, your joy will be rapturous. It will be just filled with joy beyond what you can imagine when your Savior comes back. Because you've lived for Christ and you've even suffered for him. Titus chapter 2 says we ought to be looking for that blessed hope. For the return of Christ. And what, that, what does that do for us? Turn there to Titus chapter 2 for a second. Titus chapter 2. It's nearby. Listen to what he says. Looking for that blessed hope. Well, let me go back to verse 12. Instructing us, watch, deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly. When? Now in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, belonging to him, zealous for good deeds. That's why. We ought to be looking in anticipation of that. And what he says, go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. He says in verse 14, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. Now I could compare that. I would suggest that you look at Matthew chapter 5 on your own for that. But the spirit of God resting upon us, we have the spirit of God in us. And he is able to help us and encourage us during that suffering when we're suffering for the right reasons. And I'll give you another example to look up on your own. It's found in Acts chapter 7, and it's Stephen, who undeservedly was stoned to death. And while he was being stoned, still could rejoice and still could look to heaven and still could turn around and say, do not hold this to their account. How could he possibly rejoice? Because in suffering, in real pain, in a real trial that actually caused him his life. 
He stood for the things of Christ and could rejoice in that because he was focused. What did he expect? That they wouldn't stone him? He should have expected that, and he did. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter to what extreme. So don't be surprised. Continuously rejoice. It will get worse, but we can have our focus on God. However, we come to the second thing, and that is make sure you're suffering for the right reasons. Verses 15 through 19. Why am I suffering? Let me first of all cover something here. That we suffer for many reasons. And I want you to understand what Peter's dealing with before I read verse uh, 15. We can suffer because of the circumstances of life. Just understand that. If a hurricane comes through, that's circumstances of life. You're suffering because the hurricane came through and a uh, window blew out and you got glass that uh, hit you and whatever, and you're suffering in that circumstance. That's a circumstance of life. All right? Sometimes we suffer because of the foolishness of people. Let me give you another example of that. If somebody come by and they say, why did that child get killed? Well, it was because you had a drunken driver going down. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you my version of it. You're not going to like this. But I'll give you my version. Why did that child, well, a drunken driver. Yeah, why? Because all the commercials on TV told them to go drink and buy this beer, and, but do it responsibly. How foolish we are. Build everything up, tell them how to drink, and then tell them to do it responsibly. And then when they get drunk, we get surprised. And then what happens, they go and kill someone. That what is foolishness. Just the foolishness. Sometimes we suffer because of that. Sometimes, and we'll get to this one in just a second, but we suffer because of our own foolishness. Peter's not dealing with those things. He's dealing with real suffering, but he says, not every believer, in effect, is suffering because they're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Sometimes we suffer because we deserve it. Verse 15. Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a troublesome meddler. That's what he says. We don't like that. That's uncomfortable. And the believers needed to hear that. Let me give you some practical examples, then I'll deal with the specifics that he, that he lists here. He says that make sure you suffer for the right reason. He's not dealing with the, the circumstances of life. He's not dealing with the foolish person. He's dealing with them, where they're either suffering because they're taking a stand for Christ or they're suffering because they deserve it. And I'll give you some practical situations. I've heard people say, I'm suffering at work. Why? Because I'm witnessing for Christ. Are you doing your job? Well, are you supposed to be witnessing? Well, and then they said, but I'm suffering for Christ. No, you're not. You're suffering because you're a bad worker. You're not doing your job. Yeah, but I got this ministry. Is that the ministry you're being paid for? No. You're not doing your job. You're suffering because you deserve it. How about this? People go around, just to make it practical to this, and they blow up an abortion clinic. You deserve to go to jail. In fact, you deserve the death penalty. That is not what you're called to do. That's not suffering. Oh, I'm suffering. Why? I got a speeding ticket. You deserved it. You're suffering because you broke the law. 
You're suffering because you did this to your neighbor. You're suffering because you did this to your children or your spouse. You're suffering because you deserve it. Not because you're suffering for Christ. Oh, I'm suffering in my marriage. Why? I'll give you another practical one. You got an unsaved spouse and you're never home with them. Oh, but I'm serving Christ. And Christ comes first. Christ does come first. And he tells you how to live with that spouse. And you can't turn around and say that I'm not having any time with my spouse and saying you're living for the glory of God because you're even occupied all the time in the church and have no time for your spouse. You have no time for your children and I'm suffering. I have been suffering so greatly because this happened. Well, when did that happen? 25 years ago. No, you know why you're suffering? Because you have an unforgiving spirit. You haven't let it go. That's why you're suffering. You're suffering mentally. You're suffering in your conversation. You're being persecuted because you haven't let it go. You deserve what you're getting. You're suffering because you're envious. You're jealous. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I want you to see this. We need to make the distinction. Don't go say you're suffering for Christ. Oh, you may profess Christ, but that you're suffering for him when you're the cause of the problem. We can do that. And if we're honest, we all do at times. Watch. Galatians chapter, this is practical and uncomfortable. But uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the deeds, watch this. We know the passage well, right? Walk in the spirit. You won't carry out the, disease, the, the desires of the flesh. Verse 16. And it's not a disease, by the way. In verse 17, the flesh sets itself, and we know the battle that goes on. Look at verse 19. Here's the deeds of the flesh, the flesh that are evident. What is it? Immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. We get those. Idolatry. We get it. Sorcery. I get it. Enmities. Understand. Strife. Uh-oh. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger. Disputes. Dissensions. Factions. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the like, and things like these. He's forewarned us. Those that practice those things don't even have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Those are things of the flesh, and when we're suffering because of that, we deserve it. And look at what he names. He names four things. Murder. That's why I referred to blowing up an abortion clinic as an example. And for the tape, I'm not saying do that. That's wrong. Okay. As for a thief, I think we understand that. We're stealing. And then we understand that I'm suffering. You're not suffering for anything but what you deserve. Those two I think we understand. But let's take a look at the last two with the time we have left. First two are self-explanatory. How about the third one? He says as an evildoer. What does that mean? It means this, literally. Any type of evil. Anything that violates the law, anything that breaks the law of God. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 14, same book, look at what he said. He said, or to the governors as sent by him for the punishment, and here it is, of evildoers. Remember that? We're to submit to the government because the government... In that relationship, 
their job is to punish evildoers. Now, whether they do that or not is another story. They are supposed to be punishing anyone that does not abide by the law. They're sent for that purpose. And he says, don't let you, in chapter 4, suffer as a person who's breaking the law. You're breaking the law and you think you're suffering for Christ. No, you're not. You're suffering because you broke the law. Look at 3 John. Go with me. There's only one chapter, 3 John, right near the back of your Bible, close by. Look at verse 11 to help you understand this term. 3 John 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Pretty strong. Don't imitate what's evil. We have Christians that are following evil paths and then they're saying that they're suffering for Christ. But they got what they deserve. Make it practical. They don't pay their taxes. They don't pay their creditors. They don't pay attention to being kind. They don't pay attention to loving their spouse. They don't pay attention to submission. Whatever the case might be, and on and on it goes. And then they think they're suffering for Christ. That's not suffering for Christ. The next one's worse. A troublesome meddler. Wow, that's a big term. It's been interesting. I did some work on this to see the way some people translated this word. Uh, it's only used by Peter, by the way. First of all, the most common rendering is one who meddles in matters that really aren't his own in the first place. If you are a person that's meddling in something that doesn't belong to you, you know what Proverbs says? You're like taking a dog by the ears. You deserve to get bit. You deserve that bite on your arm and going to the hospital. You stop meddling in something you know nothing about and starting into areas like that. You're not suffering for Christ. You're causing suffering for the body of Christ. It's also translated a troublemaker. Some have translated it a spy, an informer. It was interesting to look at that use of the word in some of the ancient language, how this word was used as an informer. It was a person who wants to get, do you know what was going on? Do you know what that person did now? Do you know what happened here? And that's the way it was explained as an informer. And then went on to say, known as a spy. There's people in the body of Christ like that. And then they say they're suffering. No, that is not what we're to do. We're not to be suffering that way. Go with me to two passages quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So why am I suffering? That's a good question to ask myself. And if I don't know why, and I don't know there's sin in my life, that's okay. We're going to get to that. But make sure you examine it. It's not because you deserve to get it. You're meddling in things you shouldn't be meddling in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. If we would all, even as believers, attend to our own business, let me make it practical. Use the gifts I've got. Be serving the Lord myself. Be reading the word of God myself. Be controlling myself so I'm building up the body of Christ. If I'm paying attention to that, I haven't got time to be worried about everything else other than to be on my knees and pray in the business of everybody else. He says, attend to your own business and work with your hands 
just as we commanded you so that you will believe properly toward the outsiders. Interesting context. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm trying to be practical with you folks because we all get caught in this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. For we hear that some of you, who is this? Professing believers. Watch. Some of you are leading an undisciplined life. What does that look like? Doing no work at all. Those are usually the ones that talk about all that they want to do, they're going to do, they can do, but they never do. They don't work at all. But, watch this, acting like busybodies. You ever see them? They don't work. They don't work hard, and they always criticize everybody else. And they're busybodies about everything else that everybody else is doing. That was happening to believers. Verse 12. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat your own bread. Get back to doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's pretty practical. Let me go to one more passage. This one hurts. Go to Proverbs 6. Someone made a comment about this to me, I think three or four weeks ago, something like that. And I happened to mention to them, <laughs> we were talking about this passage very briefly, but I said, yeah, it's coming, because I knew it was coming in this passage here. Proverbs 6 Verses 16 and 19. You'll recognize it. These six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven. Watch this. Seven are an abomination. We recognize the world. And what's an abomination, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago, even with the, what come down in the courts. We understand that. But do you understand these things are an abomination? Verse 17. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. They're in a hurry to her here, just like with a troublesome person. Then what else? He goes on. He's not done. A false witness. One who doesn't know what they're talking about, but has all kinds of accusations. What else? He had his lies. And here's the one we never look at. One who spreads strife among brothers. The Lord hates that. It's an abomination. And what are we saying? What is Peter saying? Peter's reminding them, keep your focus. Don't be surprised by persecution from the world. But it certainly shouldn't be coming from the body of Christ. And don't you talk about how you're suffering if you fall into these categories. Where you're causing strife among the brethren, where you are a meddler, where you are a troublesome person, or you're involved in evil and then you're suffering, truly are suffering. Why? Because you deserve it. Because you deserve it. Don't let that happen. That's what he says. It's a good check for us because we can get caught up into it. And then he comes back in verses 16 and 19, quickly back in 1 Peter. And says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian. Now it's interesting. Most of the time, the, Christ, the word Christian isn't used too much in the Bible. I'm sure you're aware of that. It is used a few times. And most of the time it's used in relationship to refer to the Christians. Or in Acts when it says they were first called Christians. But here it's used as a believer. 
and he used it in the right context. If you're going to say you're a disciple of Christ, if you're going to say you're a follower of Christ, and that's why you're suffering, don't be ashamed. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks. You just keep serving the Lord. You let everything else fall by the wayside. Don't be ashamed, but it is to glorify God in his name. And then he goes on and say, for the time of judgment begins at the household of God. It's a cleansing process. And we ought to be thankful. Even in some of the things that I talked about. If we're honest, there isn't a one of us, starting with me, that some of these things haven't happened in our lives. And then we wonder why things aren't going right. Or we think we're being persecuted. Or we think we're suffering. And we're the center of it. We were really the ones that caused it ourselves. We ought not to be surprised by that. But we ought to be thankful because God uses that as a cleansing process. And that's what it means. This judgment is not for condemnation. If you belong to Christ, Romans 8, 1 makes it very clear. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are never condemned as a Christian because of the work of Christ. But he does cleanse us. And we are in that judgment process where he's in the refining process to help us to live godly and to live for the glory of God. But what about the world? He goes on to say that. It begins first at the household of God. What will it be like? What will the outcome be for those who obey not the gospel? For those who truly haven't come to trust in Christ? That ought to be a motivation for us to bear with suffering and also a motivation to give the gospel out. Because we really need... Do we view that our fellow workers, our fellow neighbors? How about our relatives that we've been praying about that are unsaved? I'll be honest. Do we really envision their judgment that's coming? Or is it, yeah, I guess they're going to hell? Because if we really understood what they were going to face, we would be bold with the gospel and not ashamed of it and wouldn't care what they think. And we wouldn't care if we get isolation. Wouldn't care if we were rejected. Even if the person at work or the neighbor, we wouldn't care about that because we'd be more concerned about their eternal souls. And he reminds us, he actually quotes from the Old Testament out of the Septuagint. He says, if it was difficulty that the righteous get saved, what will it be like for the godless man and the sinner? Horrible. Horrible. There is no escaping the judgment of God. Be thankful that God is working it in our lives. And he concludes with this. Therefore, those who are suffering according to the will of God, if you are suffering as a believer, you are suffering according to the will of God. That is part of his will for your life. And what are you to do? The same thing that our Savior did as an example. Let me read this first and then show you. It says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. There are circumstances that sometimes you're walking with the Lord, you love the Lord, you know it's, you are suffering, you don't know why. What do you do? You have to entrust yourself to God and his wisdom. That's what happened in chapter 2. Look at it quick in closing. The Lord Jesus Christ in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, it says, right? But what did it say in 23? While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he added no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what he's talking about. He entrusted his soul to the one who judges righteously. So what is he saying? How can we triumph in suffering? Expect it. 
If you're living for Christ, expect it. Rejoice in it because it has eternal rewards. But also, he, in the midst of that, he said, evaluate it. Be honest. Do a self-evaluation. Am I suffering because I'm a troublemaker? Am I suffering because I deserve it? I'm an evildoer? Hopefully not a murderer or a thief? Am I suffering because I'm causing discord among the brethren? Because I'm causing false? Then I deserve what I'm getting. I deserve more. But God's being kind. So evaluate it. And then above all, entrust your suffering if you're truly suffering for Christ. You might not understand it here, just like Job never did. He does now, but he didn't while he lived on the earth. He didn't understand why he went through what he did, but God was refining him. And he trusted his soul to the one true living God. He said, naked came I in, naked go I out, right? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when we don't understand, we have to trust our souls to the Lord, that he knows what he's doing, and he's doing what is right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Peter and his practical challenges. We know, Father, that suffering is not easy. But I first of all pray that you'd help us not to be suffering because we deserve it. And Lord, that's not easy to be honest with. But I pray, Father, you'd help us to love Christ, to want to follow him. And then if suffering comes, help us to entrust our souls to the one true living God who is doing what is right and even refining us and help us to rejoice that our faith is being purified and that when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, we will rejoice with exaltation beyond our imagination. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.